0: Welcome to the Doctor Patient Forum, a no-holds-barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. Hey guys, this is Claudia and Bev. Thanks for tuning in uh, to the Dr. Patient Forum podcast. Some really exciting news to share with you. We are stoked to announce that June 1st, we are launching our Patreon subscription page, and we think this is the solution to so many of our woes. Over the years, we've gotten bigger, and we haven't had the opportunity to connect with our constituents the way we would like, and Patreon subscription is going to give us that opportunity. As you probably know, if you've had to turn down some speaking engagements along the way, so Patreon will also afford us uh, this great way to raise money while connecting with our constituents, you guys, because you folks are the people who are the driving force behind the movement. And and Bev, they're going to be getting three different subscriptions they can choose from.
1: Yes, we'll have three different subscription tiers. And I want to say, because this is really important that you guys... No, you're not losing anything that we already give you. You're still going to get these podcast episodes that we will still do. Our website, www.thedoctorpatientforum.com, our social media groups. None of that is going anywhere, but we're offering this in addition to, like Claudia said, it, it'll give us an opportunity to maybe connect with you guys one-on-one. We'll have some extra behind-the-scenes content and some extra really exciting video podcast that we're going to be doing, like some reaction videos. And in addition to that, I'll be posting on every tier, we'll get daily posts of important studies, articles, anything that's important for patients and doctors or providers to be aware of. And in the show notes, I'm going to link the our Patreon page there. So you can check out the welcome video there it's not going to be there yet it will be there once we launch like Claudia said June 1st is our launch date but we're going to try
0: really hard to get it out there before then this is exciting news Uh, so come along with us on the next step in our advocacy thanks Hey, folks, thanks for taking time out of your day for joining us for this episode of the Dr. Patient Forum podcast. Don't forget, if you like what you heard today, be sure to uh, leave us a five-star review. Today's a treat for both Bev and I. We've been following Josh Bloom for a long time. Josh, you're one of the first people that I discovered on social media who was really fighting on behalf of pain patients. Welcome to the Dr. Patient Forum podcast, Josh Bloom.
2: Thank you for having me, and I appreciate the financial incentive. Oh, wait, that's zero. Never <laughs> mind.
0: Right, absolutely. And Josh is with, Josh. You're with the American Council on Science and Health, and that's where people can follow your work. Uh, we follow you mostly on Twitter. Well,
2: and- if, if not for the American Council on Science and Health, I wouldn't have any work. Yeah. So. Uh-huh. That's that's the long-standing organization that debunks junk science. And when I started reading about what was going on with painkillers a decade ago, that fell under the umbrella of uh, well, the kind of thing we did. Uh, little did I know back then what a catastrophe it would turn into. So uh, it was just a little luck, or if you want to call me prescient, that would be accurate. Except. When it comes to the stock market, and then it would not be
0: <laughs> josh you've you've actually brought some humor to a, a really awful situation, and I can remember one time I was on the stairmaster, and i I read one of your articles about Andrew Kolodny, and I was howling out loud uh, <laughs> because you you know you're relentless with him, and you really debunk the garbage that comes out of that organization mm-hmm. so honestly thank you because uh, you, you you've you given these people like some humor in a really dark time for them
2: I always refer to myself as the world's funniest organic chemist n equals one
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> yes and I, you know I was driving my daughter to get her protein shake and I was explaining to her you know, Eva, we have Josh Bloom on today. He's an organic chemist, and she's 17. She says, I don't even know what that is. So, Josh, explain to the people a little about what an organic chemist does.
2: Oh, do you really want me to do this?
0: Yeah, <laughs> like like just very little, just so people can – I want people to know why you're so knowledgeable about debunking junk science.
2: Well, it kind of came in different stages. Chemistry provides – the, uh, the knowledge, the underlying knowledge to understand all kinds of other processes like biochemistry and medicine. Uh, organic chemistry is the branch of chemistry that deals with carbon-containing compounds. And it's usually how to convert one to the other. It's called organic synthesis. So that was my formal training. But then um, that would have made me unsuitable to do anything like I'm doing now. But then my first career uh, was in what's called medicinal chemistry, where you apply organic chemistry to drug discovery. So that the, the uh, emphasis becomes using organic chemistry for uh, potential health purposes rather than just studying it as, as its own field. Okay. And when... And, go ahead.
0: No, I wanted to know what made you interested, like what brought you to this whole false narrative surrounding the opioid epidemic? How did you get to this place?
2: It's kind of, it's a really strange story. I'd been in uh, doing drug discovery research for Wyeth, uh, a formerly, a former big pharmaceutical company for many years. And we got bought by Pfizer in 2009 which is roughly equivalent to your doctor saying, yeah, there's a little spot on your lung x-ray, but it's probably nothing. Well, it's never (laughs) nothing when Pfizer buys you because all they do is fire everyone and take the products, which is exactly what happened. And I found myself unemployed after 20 whatever years, which was mildly disturbing. But the, the freaky part of this is that, you know, once a wise-ass, always a wise-ass. So this didn't just start. It, it turns out that maybe 10 years before that, I was living in a kind of a Granolaville town in New York called Nyack, where it's all the organic types and the, the reekies and the chiropractors and the acupuncturists. It very, It's like Greenwich Village North. And um, the, there was a monthly publication called the Nyack Villager. And a bunch of people had columns in it. One was an anti-vax, anti-medicine chiropractor who was a just absolute moron. So I started writing letters in uh, in response to some of the stuff he was saying, and they were pretty scathing. And then the the publisher asked if I wanted to do a monthly column, which I said sure. And it was called science without fiction and i took on all this nonsense like anti chemical anti drug movement and i just kind of like skewered it in you know much the same as the way you're seeing now that i did that for 18 months and then i got fired because i was going after all of the advertisers in the magazine oh my
0: gosh how funny
2: right so so now you Fast forward 10 or 15 years or whatever it is, I'm out of work living at my house on Fire Island for the summer. And I get up in the middle of the night to perform a certain bodily function. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I probably won't go into more detail about this. And uh, the funny thing is, one of the good things Pfizer did for us was provide a wonderful outplacement service where I worked for six weeks on my resume, which I thought was pretty good to begin with. And it really turned into like a model. So you know, I had a great resume, but I was a bit old to be hired back into the drug industry. They don't want to pay old guys what they can when they can pay two young guys for the same salary. So I, four o'clock in the morning, I can't get back to sleep. So I sit down on my computer and uh, I figured, well, you know, I got a lot of academic publications, but let me put some more. Uh, non-academic publications. And I, I had listed some of the obnoxious columns I did for the NIAC Villager. But uh, at that time, somebody, I don't remember who it is, told me that there's a place in New York called the American Council on Science and Health that does a similar kind of thing. And maybe I should send some in. So way back then I did. They edited and published to them and I, uh, published them and I forgot about it. So now it's 15 years later and I'm thinking, well, Maybe I can send them some more stuff just to fill out another line on my um, resume. So at four o'clock in the morning, I said, hey, you guys might not remember me, but uh, I sent you some stuff uh, a long time ago. Maybe you have some interest in, in this. So eight o'clock email. Do you have a resume handy? Which was hilarious because I just finished six weeks making a 30 page resume handy. <laughs> and I was typing, oh, yeah, I sure do. And I sent it. And an hour later, I get a call. Can you come in tomorrow? Now, this is nuts. This is based on something I had done 10 years in the past. So the place I stay in the summer is accessible only by ferry boat. There are no cars there. So I'm like getting dressed on the ferry to get, mm-hmm. in, get into New York and to talk to them. And you know, four days later they hired me
0: so josh i'd like to talk with you a little about gabapentin because it's being forced down the throats of pain patients as if it's the panacea for pain relief and you've written extensively about i refer to it as garbage pentin and i had no idea the harmful side effects that were associated with this drug until I noticed that my sister was losing her mind. Like she couldn't remember a sentence. And I said, what medications are you taking? And she said, you know, I'm on that gabapentin for neuropathy, but she said the craziest things happened to me since I've been on this medication. And I went on TikTok and I said, just for the hell of it, has anybody experienced memory loss, blurred vision, tooth decay, sense of, you know, unsteadiness? And every video I ever put out about gabapentin garnered two and a half million views. And I once I started to see that you were discussing this, I said, okay, this this is a bad drug that's being forced on patients. What are your thoughts about gabapentin and why are so many pain patients being put on this instead of opioids?
2: Well, I wouldn't call it a bad drug because it was initially approved if I remember correctly for epilepsy so if you've got seizures seems to work pretty well
0: Mm -hmm. and and neuropathy
2: yep that was uh that was added later I believe it was for shingles
0: yeah I think so I think that's
1: right right Mm -hmm. so you
2: know it, it it does it definitely works in the brain on the central nervous system so it's not possible to Imagine that it would be used for other nerve-related functions, and Pfizer then pushed it hard for a whole bunch of different indications. I think they ended up getting fined a whole bunch of money for doing that.
0: Yeah, four hundred twenty million dollars. Yeah,
2: well, <laughs> yep, yeah. There were there was there was my raise gone.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which coincidentally is the money that Agent Hugh Berman used from the AG's fund from that lawsuit to start Farmed Out.
2: Oh, yes. A lovely organization. (laughs) Very very fair and balanced.
1: Yeah. Also
2: accurate, too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. My favorite.
2: So, you know, a lot of drugs are are used off-label. It's it's legal to do so. Once something's FDA-approved, you can use it for anything else. But that doesn't mean it works because a doctor might say, well, I, I think... Let's, let's give this a try for your insomnia. In fact, I tried it once um, for my insomnia. It may be like a little sleepy. It was sort of helpful, but it didn't really help much. So I stopped it. I didn't have any of those bad side effects, or maybe my mind had already been lost <laughs> so that I couldn't tell the difference.
0: That's very possible, Josh.
2: So it's not a bad drug. It's bad as it's being used now.
0: Correct. Correct. So we see this all the time in, in the chronic pain community. These are medications that won't be helpful for pain. I even know some of the doctors I work with, if a patient tells them that it's not working, they'll increase the dose and then increase the dose. And Yeah, that's
2: the, pretty
0: typical. Yeah. And I feel like the country is being littered with extra gabapentin because, you know, when people reach out to Bev and I, they always ask me, should I continue with with this drug and as a 54-year-old person, I'm not going to continue with any drug if it's not working, right? And, and I feel like these poor pain patients, they've just been left with so much gabapentin. And ironically, the CDC mentions gabapentin 15 times in the updated CDC guidelines. Why do you think uh, the CDC is pushing gabapentin as an alternative to FDA-approved opioids for pain?
2: To make it seem like there are legitimate alternatives for opioids for pain, which, of course, there are not. So if, if you can glom on to antidepressants or uh, Neurontin or even worse, Tylenol, it's here. These things are fine. Don't take the opioids. They're bad. So it, it's just ass covering as far as I'm concerned. Plus, I don't, I don't really blame the doctors because now they're all terrified to write a script for a one tramadol. And they got to get you out of the office. So they're going to give you a prescription. Here, yeah. try this. I hear it works. Right. Or take, you know, take Tylenol. So um, the, all this pressure on opioid prescribing is directly responsible for the pushing of the antidepressants and the gabapentinoids. Normally, there is no way in the world those drugs would be pushed for severe pain, really for any type, although it seems to work. I got my review article in front of me. It it seems to work for uh, a few different things. You know some spinal cord injuries.
0: Hot flashes. Some people are telling me that a girlfriend of mine, she takes it for hot flashes. And I said, well, how's that gabapentin working out for you? She said, oh, I don't know. I don't remember. I said, yeah, that's the gabapentin. So it worked. (laughs) I said, it worked for something. You just can't remember if it worked or it didn't work. Anxiety because these people have also lost their access to their benzodiazepine.
2: Which is crazy also.
0: Right. I mean, it's all crazy. It This is the biggest con of the century. Josh, let's shift gears for uh, a minute and let's talk about the big push for... May Tylenol. I interrupt? Just... Of course.
2: Um, the I shy away from the evil drug company narrative because, first of all, I was part of one. And granted, we weren't, as a discovery scientist, you're at the very beginning of the process. You're not making any money or spending and wasting lots of it. But there was nothing evil that I saw from any of my colleagues. We were just trying to develop new drugs for real problems. So a company isn't a single entity. It it consists of all kinds of different people, different persuasions and um, different training. So Pfizer, look, without Pfizer's uh, mRNA vaccine and its antiviral drug, uh, we'd be in a whole lot of trouble now Mm -hmm. with uh, COVID. So say what you will about Pfizer, but those are your choices because they took the time and trouble to do it. And it was not a, a simple task. So anyhow, that's my spiel. I don't reflexively defend drug companies. I go after some of them all the time. Right. But I just wanted to get my little
0: of course. Back. Yeah, I and and I appreciate it. Let's talk a little bit. Wait, you know what I want to ask you? Because you just said something about making drugs. Why have we not fast tracked a non addictive opioid?
2: Well, which one? How? Well,
0: well, are, is there such a thing as a non addictive opioid that's effective for pain?
2: Well, I would argue that when properly used, all of them are not addictive or minimally addictive. Yeah. But in terms of one that has a magic window where addiction is impossible, pain is treated, there's no such thing.
0: That's right. That's yeah. right, Josh. Yeah. There's no such thing because one doesn't exist. And when I hear from, when I see these crackpots out of props, they'll say, oh, well, you know, the FDA needs to fast track a non-addictive opioid. One doesn't exist. Somebody will always addict to something. You know,
1: Nora Volkow from NIDA, I think it was 2013. She was at a hearing, Senate hearing, I guess. And she said, if we're going to take this medication away from people, we have to make sure to have something in its place first. We can't take this away without putting something first. And, and then they ended up doing it. I haven't heard her say much about it since then, but um, that's exactly what they did. And as far as pharmaceutical companies being good or bad, I think they exist the way they exist and they function the way they function. And and I don't think Purdue did anything that any other company would or wouldn't do, I, I, I just think that, and I don't think our country even really cares about how pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies work. I think they all pretended to be outraged by Purdue Pharma and then every other pharmaceutical company that made opioids to, to make money. I think it's all about that litigation narrative. And so they're all pretending to be outraged, but they don't express outrage at any of the other companies doing the exact same thing. You know, it's it's really hypocritical.
2: Well, you know, if from what I've read, Purdue did apparently make some false claims and okay. knowingly so. So that's not cool. Right. But when, when Pfizer made false claims about Neurontin, that wasn't cool either. Right. So. Uh,
1: or what about Indivior and Reckitt when they made false claims to extend their medication, when they claimed that the the films were less likely to hurt children, that was a lie and they had to pay for it, but media didn't jump all over that. It's just, they jumped all over the things that were going to enrich our country with, with litigation. And I don't even know if media knows that they did it.
2: Well, I, I guess if you're expecting the truth out of the media, good luck with that. because <laughs> You really- know, you're not going to get it.
1: That's an excellent point. We're splitting our interview with Josh Bloom into two separate podcast episodes. This one is about gabapentin, and then the next one will be about Tylenol, and also we touch on suicide due to pain. Josh was on a recent podcast at ACSH where he works. I'm going to include some sound bites. From that podcast. And I will, of course, in the show notes, link the podcast in case you want to listen to it in its entirety, because Josh comments on a few things here that I'd like for you to listen to about the CDC and how they came up with their guidelines and the DEA. So I'm going to play a few sound bites for you now. And then after that, we'll finish up this episode.
2: A bunch of terrible, potentially dangerous mistakes that they were making uh, under Tom Friedman back in the early 2010s. And of course now they've proven it even more. Oh, I found interesting that the C- CDC, which might not even know how to open a prescription bottle, is all of a sudden weighing in on suggested doses for different drugs that doctors should be prescribing. Suggestions which were based on absolutely nothing, they started to become state laws very quickly. And now there are about 40 states that have restrictions on opioid prescribing. Yeah, the result is tens of millions of pain patients who have been involuntarily tapered from there. And of course now there's such pressure on doctors and hospitals not to prescribe opioids because they're getting on a DEA list and being prosecuted if if the DEA deems that they're writing too many prescriptions or too high a volume, as if the DEA should be deciding what the right number of prescriptions and dose is. You've got the DEA and the CDC, maybe the two worst agencies to be inserted between the patient and the doctor, and the results have been an absolute disaster, not just for pain patients, but it's irrefutable evidence now that as
3: pain prescriptions have been cut and they're they're down to below 2010 level, I think.
1: I've seen several different graphs of statistics on where our level of prescribing is compared to where it was in the 90s or early 2000s. I'm going to include a graph in the show notes that shows we are actually where we were in 1992 when it comes to number of prescriptions. From what I understand, you could measure it by MME or different things. But as far as level of prescribing, it seems to be that we are back to where we were in 1992, which is well before OxyContin was ever even a thing.
2: The um, number of opioid deaths go up, of course, because of course people switch over to fentanyl and we all know about that now. So the, this policy has hurt users and abusers and doctors because I know a whole bunch of them that are, have lost their license or going to jail or they're being trial now. And it's, it's really, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like Stalinist Russia where the government is dictating to doctors how much of a pain medicine they can prescribe.
1: I'm going to read a few more quick quotes from another podcast with Josh called Neurontin, the Lousy Opioid Alternative. It's another podcast with ACSH because I want you to hear a few more things that he said about this drug.
2: I remember back in the late 90s, I think it acquired a reputation as being a very safe drug. So you could take large amounts of it, and people were using it for insomnia also, sometimes 2,000 milligrams a day, which is way, way over any dose for any legitimate indication. I think the safety has come under scrutiny as it's used more, and I think it's clear now that it's not as safe as doctors thought it was uh, a couple of
4: decades ago. Would you agree? I would. And then the other place I, I looked... Just to get a better sense of it, because I knew we were going to talk about it today, are there's two other numbers that help put that drug in context. One's called the number needed to treat, which is how many patients you need to treat with the drug before you have benefit for one patient. And the second number is the numbers needed to harm, which is the number of patients you need to treat before you harm someone. And as it turns out for Neurontin, uh, the numbers are pretty well evenly matched, except harm may be a little bit worse. You need to treat six patients in order to make one person better with neuron, based on on, on how you do the calculation. And in terms of harm, depending on which harm you talk about, uh, you may need to treat as little as three patients before you have harm. So I think that you're you're 100% correct that a lot of the harm in the drug, or the adverse effects, let's call it the adverse effects, were were underplayed because people didn't, uh, weren't paying attention to them once they started prescribing it. Josh, you point out in the story that this drug is prescribed more often off-label today than for what it's actually indicated for. I know you guys were talking about that. So how much of that is due to its use as an alternative to opioids right now?
2: I would say, and this is just a rough guess, more than half. Oh, I,
4: definitely more than half. Maybe more than 80%. Yes. Because Neuron, which is what most of the people are prescribing, because Lyrica remains a branded drug and is far more expensive. Is and being, more dangerous. Is being used in place of other pain meds for treatment of neuropathy and, and, has, and has for d- several decades at this point. There's kind of a general feeling out there that this
2: is a fairly safe, non-opioid method of treating pain in general, which is a bunch of nonsense, of course. But if pain patients comes, comes into a doctor's office with a, any number of either neurological or muscular disorders, the doctor has very little choice now because, fine, take Tylenol and, and good and plenty at the same time because they're synergistic and they work equally well. So then, of course, there's Advil. That Advil is very far from a safe drug. It destroys your stomach and kidneys. People are allergic to it. Lots of people just can't take it. So those are your choices. Or Neurontin, or even worse, antidepressants. So what do you do when you're a GP and a patient comes in with some kind of a pain issue or chronic pain? Or even worse, a patient that's no longer has a physician because the physician was thrown in jail or quit pain management because of the DEA on their back. So it, 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 it's, an, it's an impossible situation. It barely works for what it's approved for. And the off-label uses for, let's say, muscle pain or a broken leg or something, that's no more than human experimentation in my mind. I don't think anybody could argue with that. So this is, I wouldn't say a corporate problem. This is a government problem. This is a DOJ, DEA problem. You can throw in the CDC there also. And it's doctors not being allowed to practice medicine. You say that between 2004 and 2019, the number of prescriptions for gabapentin or Neurontin uh, rose from 18 million to 45 million, an increase of 250. percent And uh, you also point out that this drug is now one of the top 15 drugs responsible for overdose deaths. Now, as a as a layman, I can't help
4: but think that those numbers are connected. So, I want both of you to give me your insight on on that that issue.
2: They're absolutely connected uh, because if they're combined with opioids, you know, they do approximately the same kind of thing that alcohol or benzo would do. They contribute to respiratory depression. And what's really pathetic, and I haven't even mentioned this, is why would Neurontin be combined with opioids? The answer is because your patient that was doing pretty well on 100 milligrams of oxycodone a day and is now on 30, they go and get a bunch of Neurontin and they combine it and lots of it with their prescription med, what little they get isn't working, and there you're running into problems. So this isn't—I is don't believe—is a street drug problem. Unlike the rest of it, I think this is a this is just as good a picture as you can paint of the desperation of pain patients and the terrible options that they have
1: i recently asked on the doctor patient forum rally page for patients experiences with gabapentin because i knew that we were having this podcast with josh bloom and we got a lot of responses i would say over a hundred Most of them were definitely negative experiences. We had a few positive experiences with it. I just want to remind you, we are not giving you any medical advice. We would never tell you to stop a medication without speaking with your doctor. We are also not saying it doesn't work for anybody. It's very possible this medication works for you. But we just advocate for transparency. Like the doctors need to tell you what these possible side effects are and allow you to make these decisions yourself. I'm just going to read a few of these comments about gabapentin and i will link in the show notes the post so you can read them in their entirety i am on it now it helps my back pain but makes me cry and suicidal also i can't think straight i gained 10 pounds in a month i became physically ill taking neurontin and needed to be weaned off each step down was pure withdrawal how anxiety shortness of breath, shaking, depression, etc. After I was completely off, my husband's comments to me were, welcome back. I took gabapentin and when they got me up to the highest dosage, I ended up having seizures from it. I spent two days in the hospital and couldn't drive for six months. I've been on gabapentin for over 25 years. It helped with one damaged nerve in my groin. I have severe back pain and fibromyalgia, neither of which it helped at all. It isolated the pain and I was grateful, but I've been trying to wean off for several years. The pain hasn't come back. I've reduced the gabapentin by 85%, but when I cut one of the remaining two pills I take daily, I have massive muscle twitching. It's as though I have restless leg syndrome, but in all of my limbs. I can't sleep and I have a lot of increased pain as a result. It's not a great drug and is not something that should be prescribed indefinitely in my opinion. Also, the initial prescription was 2,400 milligrams overkill. I immediately went to 1800 so I could stay awake with no return of pain. Why not a taper up? Why not check every six months to see if it's time to wean off? The next 10 years were a memory blur. I also developed some serious floaters in my eyes with blurring. I started hearing about memory issues with the drug, so I dialed it back to 800 milligrams and tried to wean. I'm stuck on 200 milligrams a day and have been for over a year. Weaning further has proven to be a hurdle I wonder if I'll ever jump. I was on gabapentin, a high dose, which I started on day one, for a few years. I gained a bunch of weight, blood pressure, which had always been on the low side, slipped up to high normal, and I was told by the prescribing doctor that I could cold turkey it at any time if I wished to do so. I decided to go off of it a few months back, cold turkey, and my life absolutely unraveled for a month, month and a half, with some really horrific mental and physical side effects. I was on gabapentin for a year with increasing doses. It didn't help with pain and nerve pain at all. It has severely affected me cognitively. And as I was was withdrawing from it gradually with the doctor's supervision, I became severely suicidal and depressed. My cognition is still severely affected. That being said, I realized that everyone is different and that it may be very helpful for some to give a better quality of life and relief from their symptoms. I was walking into walls. A teacher turned me into CPS because she thought I was drunk. A kind lawyer took up for me. I've been off of it for years, but I now have CRPS of the face and have never been able to sleep as well since. My husband was on gabapentin less than a month. He went from totally functional on opioid pain medication to needing a locked Alzheimer's unit. Constantly falling, furniture walking, memory loss, could no longer drive or manage activities of daily living, no pain control. His chronic graft versus host disease from stem cell transplants flared terribly. That includes his pain even more. Violent mood swings, suicidal. It was a total nightmare. I took gabapentin for only two weeks and stopped due to not being able to process a thought in my head and try to verbalize it. It came out as mumble jumbles. Scared the heck out of me. Gabapentin was the worst drug ever. My ankles became very swollen I had excessive bruising if I bumped anything. My tiny dog stepped on my foot and my whole top of my foot turned black and blue. I have blurry vision and cognitive issues where I felt like I was getting dementia. I couldn't form a sentence because I forgot words. It must be damaging brain cells. I was on Neurontin, Gabapentin as the generic name, for a total of 16 years. Off-label, of course, for migraines. I have a lot of brain damage, multiple movement disorders, aphasia, no short-term memory, etc., etc. The whole shebang. I should be dead from this medication. I have a lot of experiences with this dangerous killer drug. And as more patients are not, I was never informed by my providers when Gabapentin was placed on the FDA warning list in 2012. I was on gabapentin and it's a wicked drug. It caused me to be so spacey and not think straight and it shifted my teeth permanently. It did nothing for me but gain weight like 41 pounds a month. So those are just some of the comments. Like I said, there's a lot more. It. Definitely seems like gabapentin is a medication that could help a lot of people for certain pain, but the fact that it's being given to people who were stable on opioids just to rip them off of opioids, to me, is disgusting. This needs to stop. It just needs to stop because they're taking a medication that could help some people, could hurt some people, and they're not telling patients. And they're taking patients off of medication that's already helping them to give them this medication because they feel safer. My opinion, they feel more protected from DEA and state medical boards when they prescribe gabapentin. And it maybe helps them not to feel so guilty about ripping them off of opioids. That's just my opinion. I was on gabapentin for a very short time. I mean, like a week, many, many years ago. My experience with it was very much like some of these. I remember walking up the steps. I was carrying a glass of water and my arm literally jerked and the water flew and I I saw it happen and I had no control of my arm. None. I I couldn't do anything to stop it. The other thing that I remember very clearly was that I would forget my thoughts as I was speaking. I would start a sentence and within a few words, I had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. Couldn't remember any of it. I had no memory. And then a weird one is I started talking in my sleep like I would have these weird like awake and sleep things at night where I wasn't fully awake but wasn't fully asleep and I was talking and it it was very strange but I stopped taking it Uh, recently due to some back issues my doctor asked me if I wanted to start it and I was like yeah no it's not for me and again it helps a lot of people but it just doesn't make any sense to rip people off who are stable to put them on a drug that has all of these possible side effects but That's what's happening. Next, we are going to hear from a patient, James, who he was kind enough to let me do a short interview with him. And he's going to quickly tell you about his experience with gabapentin. Hi, James. Thank you so much for being with me today on our podcast. You had said you had some issues with gabapentin, but first, can you just briefly introduce yourself?
3: Sure. I'm James Aiken. I'm 53 years old, and I live in Alabama.
1: Excellent. So what happened with you with gabapentin? What was your experience?
3: Uh, I started about 10 years ago for the numbness and tingling and burning my feet and legs. Um, It started out after about 12 surgeries. 12 wow yes 12 surgeries wow wow the doctor put me on 2400 milligrams per day and after about well about six months ago i went to the doctor and told him i was coming off of because of the side effects uh to go back about two years i started having teeth to start breaking off at the gum line and before that i had perfect teeth had no dental issues attended a dentist, you know, regular like I was supposed to, had no problems. So now I'm down to 21 out of 32 teeth. And I talked to the doctors about it and the doctors just kept on saying, well, you have to take the good with the bad on the side effects, just stay on the drug. So about six months ago, I just made up my own mind. I was coming off of it.
1: So when they put you on this medication, was it to use fewer opioids? Did they say it was in addition to opioids or did it just have nothing to do with it and they thought that it would help you? And then did they warn you of the possible side effects at all or were you kind of just kind of taken off guard with it?
3: Yeah, I was taken off guard with the side effects. I was never told anything about any side effects. Um, and then I started you know, looking on the internet, doing some background work on the medicine itself. And that's when I started coming across all the problems, which was everything I was experiencing.
1: How long after you started, did you start having issues, do you think?
3: I would say probably not long, probably about six months.
1: And the first, were the first symptoms about uh, memory loss or did your teeth start uh, breaking off? It- it
3: started out with the memory loss and the blurred vision.
1: When you say memory loss, do you mean like you couldn't remember things from a long time ago, or just kind of day to day?
3: I started just forgetting simple stuff. It, I mean, it started bothering me because I mean I was still young then, which I'm still yeah. young now, but right, it just started bothering me because I was, you know, forgetting simple stuff, and and then then I would start as a, as I progressed on the medicine, I noticed I started. Re- forgetting long-term stuff
1: and you said you you spoke to your doctor about the side effects so when you told him you wanted to come off he said take the good with the bad did he help you wean or did you have to self-wean and are you on it now at all or
3: um he didn't want me to come off at all and even I, with I, the
1: side effects he didn't want you to come off no
3: he did not want me to come off um and i just i just quit on my own
1: did you have to wean slowly did you have withdrawal what was it like coming
3: off of um it? I, I started just tapering my medicine down so I wouldn't have any withdrawal symptoms. And then finally I got to the point where I was just taking like one every few days and then I just I just quit taking them. Um, and, and he's tried to put me back on them for some reason. I don't know why they're pushing this drug so hard, but...
1: They do love giving this medication. I'm not really sure why. In some states it's considered controlled now, like it's in the prescription database, but I think they just like to give it to say they're doing something when they don't really want to give opioids. Did the symptoms subside when you came off at all?
3: No, I still have the symptoms.
1: Your memory loss, all of that?
3: Yeah, it's still there. I mean, it's not as strong as it was on the medicine, but it's still there.
1: And how long has it been since you stopped?
3: About six months ago.
1: Six months. Did you experience weight gain at all with it? No, not really. Yeah, that's good. That's one thing we hear from a lot of people is they gain a lot a lot of weight really 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 fast but but i'll tell
3: you something i have noticed is even when i come off the medicine yeah i've always when i well let me back up while i was on the medicine i still had the burning and tingling sensation in my feet and legs which is what they were supposedly prescribing it for Right. And and while I was on the medicine I still had it and when I come off the medicine I still have it.
1: So you don't do you think it helped at all with any of it or not even at all?
3: I don't think it helped at all. Right. I, I think it masted it a little bit.
1: Yeah.
3: But it didn't really do a lot for it. Um and, and it and it's definitely, definitely not a pain medicine.
1: No, and it's so odd to me that you told your doctor you had all of these symptoms, and they still wanted you to go back on it or not come off of it. I can't remember the maximum dose in a day, but I think twenty four hundred might be the maximum dose they're allowed to give, or it's or it's right around there.
3: Yeah, he said I was on the maximum dose. Yeah.
1: Okay, so that's the maximum dose. How long did he take you to start from when you started to get to that maximum dose?
3: Uh, not long, I would say within within a year. I was on a maximum dose because I kept on telling them, I said, it's not doing nothing. And every time I would tell them they would just up the dose and say, well, this will probably help, which it didn't.
1: My doctor tried to put me on it one time years ago, and I was on it for a very, very short time. And I noticed super quickly, like I had these odd symptoms, like I would, all of a sudden my arm would jerk and I couldn't control it. And then I would forget what I was saying mid-sentence constantly. Like I would start a thought and then I would be like, I have no idea what I was going to say, but it wasn't once or twice. It was all day long. Like that's how I, that's how it was. And so, yeah, I, I can't, I mean, it's a great drug for some people. I've heard it's great for some kind of like diabetic neuropathy and, and for seizures, which is what it was created for. I've heard it's a good drug, but I don't know why they're pushing it. Well, I do know why, because they want to just say, you know, you don't need opioids. This is better, but I don't understand what the deal is, because now the DEA is like, oh, this is an abused drug also. And people are dying from gabapentin also. So drug seeking behavior is when people are on this drug. So I don't see what is so much better about it.
3: Yeah, I don't I don't even see it being an addictive drug. Because yeah. I mean, I come off of it with no problems. I don't know if other people experience, do you know the same or not? But yeah, um, yeah,
1: I don't know. I think they. I have heard that. I heard them say something like they people who do w- use opioids to get high, like combine it with gabapentin, and it enhances. I don't know. I don't know. It's just you know the DEA. They just want to control everything with these medications and drugs. And yes people can and can't have, so it's ridiculous. Well, James, thank you so much for being willing to to speak with us today. If you'd like, I could link like your, I don't know if you have a website or a Facebook account or or a social media account that you would like me to link if you want people to reach out to you. If you do, just message me whatever it is you want linked in there and I'll be happy to do it. But thank you okay. so much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it, James.
3: Oh, you're very welcome. appreciate what you're doing
1: when we publish this i will um, email you and send you the link
3: okay sounds great
1: thanks so much james
3: thank you bye-bye thank you for listening to part one with
1: josh bloom please stay tuned for the next episode with josh where we continue our interview with him and discuss tylenol and suicide due to pain Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share with anyone that you think might benefit from this information. Just a quick disclaimer, the information contained in this podcast should not be considered medical or legal advice.